0: Off the Bench is a podcast created by ASCLS that will discuss the scientific and not the scientific ideas in laboratory medicine. We are joined by members of ASCLS,
1: fellow scientists, educators, and researchers, along with those interested in the profession. We share ideas and talk nerdy. And
0: welcome back to the Off the Bench podcast. I'm Sophia Chandra sakar one of your hosts, and today I am joined by someone absolutely wonderful. Um, and we are going to talk about the general history of the laboratory profession. Alyssa, would you
1: like to introduce yourself? Hi, I'm Elise Passman. I am a medical laboratory scientist, been one since 1969, <laughs> a long, long time. I have uh, worked at the bench. I have um, worked both as a, a Person just in the chemistry department, and then I went on weekends and nights and evenings. And so then I worked hematology, chemistry, blood bank, and uh, of course a little bit of micro. We never did lots of micro on the weekends and nights in those days, and uh, then became uh, an educator of a med tech program in a hospital-based program. Then a lab manager uh, went on to do hosp- healthcare consulting with a consulting firm in the uh, United States and Canada, and then went on to be the exec for the American Society for Clinical Laboratory Science.
0: Such an Amazing sense of history in the laboratory profession. This is why I think you're one of the best people to talk to about just a general history of our profession, as well as why laboratory people are just so awesome.
1: Yeah, if it's one thing that I've learned throughout my career is why we matter so much. Um, When I I was in college, uh, the program I went to at the University of Buffalo had a couple of really militant medical tech, Well, we were called medical technologists at the time. Um, These women had been working in the field for a long time. They had been part of the group that moved us from being the technicians that started in the early part of the 1900s, the late part of the 1800s, to being trying to become a profession as opposed to just being a physician's technician. Mm -hmm. And they had spent a great deal of time on that. And the two, uh, all of them actually, Karen Carney, Sarah Siccarelli, um, they all really felt passionately about the profession. And what they taught us, and at the time we did not realize they were ahead of their time, they taught us that uh, we should partner with physicians in helping them take care of their patients, because we really had some key information that patient, that patients and docs needed, and that we actually could uh, sometimes see something that the doc wouldn't normally. And I took that to heart when I first I started to work. I worked at the VA hospital in Buffalo. And when a patient had a problem or a doc was having a problem with a patient and they'd call the lab and they were, you know, if they got me on the phone and they were asking about results or something, I would actually try to have a conversation <laughs> and explain either what they should do next or, you know, what it meant it and, or that they had ordered the wrong test. Um, and I got myself into a lot of trouble.
0: <laughs> it, it just sounds to me like, you know, you're, you're part of this whole, we are all on the same team of providing care for these patients, and we see things that, like you said, we see things that doctors don't see. We also see things more often than doctors don't see. We're used to seeing things like anemia cells, different types of blasts, different types of weird analytes, and different sort of patterns, and and almost like algorithms, and being able to have that conversation. You were part of the movement forward of making sure all of this was actually happening.
1: Oh, yeah. I I mean, First of all, back then, we were also the phlebotomy team. In those days, we did everything. And so I would draw blood on a patient and the doc would say he wanted a SED rate. And I'd go, I'm sorry, I just drew the blood on this guy. He's got a fever of 104. You don't need a SED rate. I also, because he has a fever of 104, ran back to the lab and did his white count. And he's got an 18,000 white count. The SED rate is elevated just, you know don't worry about the SED rate. So of course, you know, I got written up because he wants a SED rate, <laughs> but it, <laughs> he didn't need that. What he needed to do was figure out why this patient had a fever and an 18,000 white gown. Okay. Um, and you know, I had one doc call. He wanted a SED rate, uh, you know, that was my favorite test. Uh, he wanted a SED rate because he didn't know whether to admit his patient to the med surge floor or the renal floor. And I said, uh, doc, your u- patient's got urine that looks like prune juice. That's how dark it was. I can promise you that his sed rate is elevated because <laughs> his urine looks like prune juice, okay? Um, and he's got both hemoglobin and red cells. So you don't need the sed rate. You need to decide whether you think this is happening in you know, post-azotemic, in other words, after the kidneys, i.e. somewhere in the urinary tract, or if you think it's in the kidneys, um, I'm happy to, and and you didn't order it, but I'm happy to run some other tests like creatinine, you know, be electrolytes, see what's going on with them. And that might help you out figuring out his kidney function. Um, And of course, you know, he wasn't happy with that. Um, and, and you know, and one time we had a patient uh, who was uh, had been on the floor for a long time at the VA hospital. Patients stayed for a long time in those days. And um he had a crit of 44. And the doc ordered three units of whole blood. Oh. Mm-hmm. Oh. So I um Went over to hematology. This is the weekend, so I went over to hematology because it's me. I'm, um, you know, so I ran over to hematology and looked at his blood smear and didn't see any retics. Didn't see, so I figure, okay, if anything, he's actively bleeding. So I called the doc and said, um, with a 44 crit, whole blood's not the answer. But I, you know, I can pack some cells for you. But I don't know that you want three units of this. is he actively bleeding? Is he, you know, spouting blood from somewhere and I'm just not seeing it yet. And he is like, I, you have to give me what I ordered. I said, no, no, I actually don't. And and I won't be doing that. (laughs) And if you like it, you can come down and sign it, but I will not sign it out. You'll have to pick it up against my judgment. Um, And My lab manager happened to be came came in that weekend and as he walked by, I said, by the way, I need to warn you (laughs) there'll probably be another (laughs) incident report. But the point was that um, even then, even though our, our, our laboratory tests were nowhere near as sophisticated as they are today, we still held the key. To, and and will always hold the key to what it is that's going on with the patient. Patients have this bad habit of not presenting the way the books say they're supposed to. Mm-hmm. And in all deference to physicians, you can't they can only go by what they see initially and, right. and and then and and then hope that they're on the right track. And then hopefully what we tell them gives them an idea if they are on the right track or if they have to rethink. Um, in the, when we first started out, when this profession was uh, in, in, in its infancy, we, many of the laboratories were on the hospital wards. Really? so Yeah. Back in the very early 1900s, labs were actually on the wards for the longest time. The docs did their own tests and then physicians decided that, you know, they couldn't, they couldn't devote the time they needed for that. So they started handing it off to the interns or the medical students. Mm -hmm. But then even because the science was growing, especially in, in bacteriology and in chemistry, they needed, they they needed the, the interns to be doing their jobs actually. So they started looking for who else could help. And in those days, women who are interested in science had very few options available to them. Uh, If you studied uh, science in the late 1800s, early 1900s, people thought, oh, oh, isn't that cute? She wants to know science so that she (laughs) can understand the flowers and the garden. And it's like, really? So so for those women, if they wanted anything in medicine, they weren't getting into medical school, the, right. uh, the, uh, the option were these scientific jobs is working up in the laboratories for these physicians and doing their tests. And that's, that's frankly how most women got into the la- hospital laboratories. Now, over time, the labs themselves got to be too big because the science got too big. And right. so they found someplace else in the hospital for the lab. Unfortunately, a lot of times it was in the basement, but what are you going to do? And and more and more women heard about this. Um they actually advertised for women who had an interest in science, uh-huh. who had, had taken some basic science courses in college, etc. And then they would train them on the job. And that that went on for quite a while. So that's why in like 1932, 1936, in that time frame, the the women who were in the profession decided that they needed to, they needed an organization where they could talk to each other. Right. And so that's when they made they formed the American Society for Clinical Laboratory Technicians. That's what it was originally called, ASCLT. Anesthesiology. Okay, yeah, okay. believe it or not, but but in the meantime, the science kept growing. Right. Um, the women who were doing the work realized that some of it needed to be standardized, so they started to write papers about quality control and papers about um, how to do certain methods so that they were you know reproducible, regardless of what laboratory you were in. They started talking about a scope of practice. They didn't call that that mm-hmm. at the time, but that's what they meant.
0: Right. So
1: they really were starting to codify what they were what was happening in the laboratory. and and to be honest with you, physicians were starting to learn how to use the lab. Remember Witebski, uh started his work on the ABO system. Mm-hmm back in the thirties and early forties. And he was able to show that if you just did a couple of simple tests, you could safely transfuse people who in in the past would have been transfused with the hopes that it didn't hurt them. And, you know, because they didn't really understand compatibility. I actually got to meet Dr. Witebski during my, I know he worked at, in his later years, he worked, taught at the University of Buffalo and worked at the uh, Buffalo General Hospital. And that's where I did my microbiology rotation. Mm-hmm. And I will, I, ne- I will never forget that. It was like a, like an idiot. It's <laughs> like me being so a rock crazy.
0: star. I mean, it's like, oh, that's
1: yeah, so cool. he was a rock star, right? Oh. <laughs> but it, the point is that um, it became very, very obvious, very, very quickly that we really did hold the key to knowing what was going on with a patient that without the laboratory tests, of course it had to be the right laboratory test, right. but, with, but without the laboratory tests, docs could miss a lot. When I was reading this,
0: the uh, Tracing Art Roots um, articles written by Virginia Copp, cutler cutlars. I'm so sorry I can't, can't cutlers mm-hmm. one of the things that stuck out to me was like how we were semi-professionals how the the the, the profession started out as for semi-professionals and that again going back to also the oh how cute you want to learn science for your flowers
1: <laughs> <laughs> right yeah so it was considered a semi-professional thing because it didn't quote-unquote Meet the definition of professionals, but a profession is a and uh, Virginia does cover this in another one of part of her article, and it, it is. A, there are a number of definitions about what constitutes a profession, but everybody agrees that a, a profession is a calling uh, that has a defined scope of practice that within that practice. You have to use independent judgment to actually do whatever it is th- that the profession claims to do. So the argument that, uh, and, and so in 1992, there was an, um, a, a case brought by a medical technologist in from the state of New Jersey, who was angry because the union was trying to unionize that particular guys hospital and they were lumping the laboratory folks in with like housekeeping and he was like that's not okay we are a profession we should be lumped with pharmacy and nursing and respiratory etc and he took the case to court uh, and it went to the national labor relations board a asmt at the time Um, filed what is known as an amicus curiae, which is a, uh, that's translates as friend of the court brief. And we explained why we believed that we exercise independent judgment. What they were hooking the um, idea that we weren't a profession on was because the lab was automated. Well, yeah, the lab was automated. Chemistry and hematology by that time had become quite automated, frankly. However, blood bank and reading of any slides in hematology, all of microbiology had yet to be automated. So none of that was, all of that included for us to do what were our job, our independent judgment. And we were able to prove to the National Labor Relations Board that we were a profession. And from that time on, there was no more argument about it. But prior to 1992, there was quite a bit of discussion about it. And and frankly, we argued among ourselves, we argued with pathologists, we argued with PhD scientists. It wasn't a pretty time trying to get recognition for being a profession, but I think I know that that day is gone. I, I don't think anybody today there is anybody who doesn't understand that what we do, that what our work comprises is a profession.
0: One of my first experiences as a student with, um, with a doctor over the phone was actually them just asking, you know, oh, why can't you just, you know, push a button and give me the result for something. And just thinking about that and realizing that, you know, they don't They don't fully understand what it is we do i remember it was it was i had i think it was a cancelled uh potassium due to hemolysis and he still wanted the result and i went i I remember as a student explaining to him well if it's hemolyzed we can't but why why can we not and explaining the hemolysis and potassium versus internal cells versus outside the cells and it was i remember him being very surprised that we would even know something like that and
1: not the greatest he knew (laughs) right
0: (laughs) not not exactly the greatest uh first interaction with a first it was the first time I picked up the phone too so oh okay it was just very nerve-wracking and as a student I was extremely confused I was like why does he not know
1: why does he not know
0: (laughs) I thought doctors knew everything of course now that I'm a couple years into my into my career they know what they know to do their job and we know what we know to do our job and we have to put our two sets together to provide a full a better full picture for sure correct
1: and and the sad part about it uh i was part of a cdc group that for a number of years golly we we probably worked on this for over seven years well one of the things we did was uh we actually took a survey of all the medical schools in the united states Mm -hmm. and asked them how they teach laboratory medicine and laboratory science. Okay? Mm,
0: okay.
1: Okay. Less than half of them have a formal course in laboratory medicine or pathology. Less than half. Oof. Right. Oof. And right. And and of the ones who do have a formal course, 20 25 or 30%, I'd have to look at the the actual study, but uh, 25 or 30% of them, it's only an elective. Oh. A six-week elective. That's it. Can you imagine trying to cram all that you and I know into a six-week elective? I right. That, no. Yeah. Right. So, so then we dove a little deeper to find out. Okay, so you say you teach laboratory medicine and science, laboratory science. That's cool. So how do you teach it? Who's your instructor? You know, what does the cl- what do the classes look like? Do you have any labs? Do you do any? So for a lot of them, they believe they're teaching lab medicine because during the third and fourth year, when the students are in clinic, the residents are teaching them which laboratory test to order. Oh, so you're like, uh, excuse me. <laughs> No, no, that's not what we mean by teaching lab medicine and lab science, because what you're doing is perpetuating the same bad practices those residents were taught during their medical training, okay? and and the the and and depending on where where they were trained depends on whether they used shotgun approach or whether they were the type you know you order. like, one resident showed me one time what he knew about laboratory tests fit on a three by five card. Oh. He literally had electrolytes, CBC, he had enlisted, okay, and then a couple of other tests by organ on a three by, and he carried in his lab coat, and that's how he ordered laboratory tests.
0: I'm surprised. The third year and fourth year is where. For some people, it's the first time they even hear about it. That's that's well into your medical career, that's or medical schooling. And at that point, you have your preconceived notions of what things should be, of what you should order for what, based off of what clinical picture. You don't even look at maybe, you know, uh like look look outside the box essentially, right? And that that almost and I see how that encourages definitely the shotgun method because you don't really know what you're doing. It's just well. Based off my index card, it looks like maybe I should be ordering these tests, right? And I, well, I uh,
1: and also when they go on rounds, you know, they're when and, and they're asked, "What lab tests would you order?" If in many cases, if you don't like give a whole list, then the attending gets jumps on you, and you know, oh, you forgot this test, or you forgot that test, and so these guys and gals are kind of like trained to order more just so they don't get yelled at kind of thing
0: uh-huh. they are the reasons why we have a new sed rate machine
1: <laughs> so my one of my most favorite pathologists that i've ever worked with uh I, dr elliot kraus uh he and i used to talk about sed rays and what a stupid order it was. Well, he became the director of the laboratories at um, Princeton Medical Center in New Jersey. And he decided he is going to fix this problem. <laughs> and he announced to the hospital, there will be no more sed rates ordered. Unless you call me. And, and then he then went to his the specialty guys and said to them, Neurologists, you can order a SED rate because you're trying to decide whether a patient's got temporal arteritis and that's the SED rate will be elevated and there won't be much else that will tell you what's going on with the patient. Got uh, um, OBGYN guys, if you think you've got a, a, um, a tubal pregnancy, order a SED rate because that's one of the ways to find out. Rheumatologist, you know, your patient seems to not be responding to their medication, seems to be relapsing. You can order sed rates. Everybody else, no more sed rates. And I mean, to this day, I have him like on a pedestal because (laughs) my feeling is this man, first of all, he was always very, very smart. But now this guy was brilliant and he did it right. (laughs) And there are no, now I don't, I don't know what's happening today. I don't know if he's still uh, directing the laboratory, but while he was there, he, he actually went through two lab managers because, you know, they moved on and I met one of them at one of our meetings and he said, oh yeah, nobody orders fed rates in our hospital.
0: (laughs) That's amazing. That's amazing. Yeah. Absolutely amazing. The small culture changes that really. Really push things forward.
1: Oh, yeah, because his thing was, you're wasting my time. Order something that the patient <laughs> that will really tell you something about the patient. Knock it off with the said rates. <laughs>
0: get a CRP, get a troponin, get a CKMB, get the things you actually need that we already
1: know correlate to things. Right. Procalcitonin. Get, yes. you know, do something that makes sense. that's going to tell you something about yes. the patient. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah so yeah I, I i have to admit I, I one time we had a patient come into the hospital, and um the, he had he was complaining like a just general visceral pain he couldn't uh-huh. he couldn't localize where where he hurt, okay, and so, of course, the doctors ordered one of everything which is okay because they couldn't figure out what was going on with him either, and um so. You know, CBC, three units, type and cross, really. Uh, Electrolytes, (laughs) creatinine B, when? Okay, so I thought, let me start with the electrolytes and a CBC. One of those is going to tell me something. And sure Sure. enough, his electrolytes, his sodium was 126. Oh. Yeah. That's so low. uh Uh-huh. His potassium was, oh, golly, it was like close to five. And, um, so I said, okay, we may have some problems here with kidneys, right? So looked at the creatinine. It wasn't elevated. The BUN was elevated, but you know, creatinine takes a while to go up. So, okay, right. fine. um, he decides he wants a random creatinine clearance. And I said, what? Yeah, I want you to do, uh, a urine and a serum and calculate a clearance. And I said, uh, "No, I don't think so." So he called the pathologist, who then said to me, "Do it anyway." Uh, and I said, "Well, no, let me." So I called the nephrologist, who by this time, you know, had gotten used to me, and I said, "He's got a 126 sodium, and he's got a, almost a high potassium. If his kidneys are functioning." He should have not much sodium in his urine because his kidneys are trying to save the sodium, right? Right. And he should be peeing out potassium, right? And and the nephrologist said, absolutely. So instead of, so that's what I did. I ran urine electrolytes. And sure enough, that was he 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 was saving trying his body was trying to save sodium and peeing out potassium. So I thought, okay, now is the time to look at something else. So I ran, he had ordered a CK and couple of other and I ran the CK and it was elevated Mm -hmm. Ran the MB the guy was having a coronary why he had general visceral pain not sure but the electrolytes you could understand why the electrolytes were unbalanced because of what was happening with his heart and called the physician and said you know this is what we've got and it's not his kidneys it's his heart um luckily he had calmed down by that point (laughs) (laughs) so the next day of course i was drawing the man's blood and he was hooked up to all these machines and stuff like that but but the fact is that it was you know we we could do that because we understand it all of what's happening in the body you you know what i mean And, and we're not focused we're not yet focused on one organ necessarily because we're, we see the patient as a whole patient, mm-hmm. um, docs sometimes, when especially in an emergency, again, and I'll give you that for them, um, they'll see they'll see them by organ, <laughs> right, right. You know, because they're they're trying to catch things before they get, get bad. And all of that makes perfect sense. Um, we have the ability to be just a little bit more objective, mm-hmm. and go by data. Because right. we, we're not seeing the patient scream and holler at us. I mean, you know what I mean? Right, right.
0: We 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 have that other perspective and are less, yes. not so much blinded because they're obviously not blinded. They, they see the patient from them, but we have the, I'm sure to many people's uh, relief, uh, we have the fortune to not be by the patient's bedside, to assist from a far distance away from the people right. and provide these provide all the data and everything everything that happens behind the scenes really
1: right so we can be a little bit more objective and that and and i I think personally that we can add some calm to a situation because we can figure help them figure something out without all the noise that's going on at the patient's bedside right right so
0: with your history of ascls where what role would you say ascls has played in the profession aside from the fact that we were pretty much there from pretty early on but just from the leadership academy from listening to the history of ascls as well as profession combined ascls to me has done so much to really drive our profession forward especially with with that union, trying to lump us in with housekeeping, which are amazing people and amazing, like what they do is so important, but also mm-hmm. at the same time, like, you know, what we do is different. We are a profession, you know. Where has ASCLS, like with ASCP and BOC and all, all of our combined histories, how have we driven things forward?
1: What we, what that, the organization has done from, from its inception is tried to make sure that the people doing the laboratory tests were A, educated, B, recognized, and then C, given the opportunity to help advance the science. So from the beginning, when they were called the American Society for Clinical Laboratory Technicians, what they were trying to do in those days was standardize some education because there were still a whole host of different ways that you could become a technician and that's what we were called in those days was was technician you there were uh, private schools that you could pay lots and lots of money to and become a technician whose training was sometimes suspect there were physicians who were hiring women right out of high school just because you know they seem to be smart and training them and training them maybe well and maybe not so well. And so the very, very beginning from the birth of uh, the organization, they recognize the need to have some formal education and for that education to be somewhat standardized. By doing that, by even just recognizing that they st- were laying the foundation for this to become a profession. And then throughout the 30s and the 40s, they were the ones who were arguing with the armed services, trying to get our, uh, the, our the people in our profession recognized in the armed services as officers okay. um, to get additional training to qualify for GI bills and that sort of thing. They accomplished that by sometime in the early, late forties, early fifties, and then started to uh, look at what it took to really set up a laboratory, practice effectively and safely. Uh, Again, a lot of it was, was looking in at what we were doing as opposed to looking out to the patient yet that would come later. But that needed to be done that way so that we would not now not only have the foundation, but start to build the actual structure of a profession, which included a lot more science than what was originally thought. And then, frankly, they started to discuss the fact that we do most of our work unsupervised. Hmm, pathologists continued to insist that nothing happened without them. And the laboratorians were saying, "Uh, I'm sorry, but you're not standing there right next to me while I'm reading this slide. And you're not there while I'm streaking this plate. And on and on and on. on. Uh, You're not there while I'm running these tests uh, in chemistry. You're... You're doing anatomical, which is fine. You're that's part of that's part of the whole profession. But you're not. We can work do this without you. Right, right. And so we spent a fair amount of time. Now, again, I I, I wasn't around for the '50s uh, as far as you know being in the profession was concerned, but in the in the throughout the 1950s the folks in the profession and pathology were constantly going back and forth about everything from who should be on the board of registry. What we call today the board of certification used Mm -hmm. to be called the board of registry. They were the ones who did the uh, exams for you to get certified. In those days, anything, anybody with an associate degree could be certified as a medical technologist. And folks were saying, no, the field is growing too fast. The science is too complicated. We need more study. So there was that argument. In addition, the Board of Registry was primarily made up of pathologists. And so they spent a great deal of time arguing about they they need to be more of us. You're certifying us, not you. Right. And so therefore we need to be on the board of registries board so that we need to be the ones constructing the exams and on and on that went. And at this, and also by the same token, uh, we can manage the laboratory ourselves. We don't need you to manage the laboratory. So a And and ASMT, the the women and and men who were in ASMT were the ones who were leading this argument. There really was, by the 1950s, AMT, the American Medical Technologists, Mm -hmm. that group existed. That group had existed from back in the 1930s. But other than that, the uh, AACC, for instance, the chemist group, didn't didn't form until the late mid to late 1940s. ASM didn't form until the 30s. We were really the laboratory profession for the longest time Uh uh, until things got to be very specialized, etc. And ASMT had this vision about what we needed to be, and they were the ones who spent the time, all the time, making sure. That that vision was, if not, that 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 at least we kept sight of the vision, even if we the reality didn't always match. Um, they were the ones who pushed for the baccalaureate degree in the 1960s as a requirement to be a medical technologist. They are the ones who came up with the idea of the medical laboratory technician as the two-year degree so that both groups, so that, because there was enough work for both. Right. Um, they even started the discussion for the clinical lab assistant, which kind of has, has gone by the wayside or you could argue has been replaced with, by the phlebotomist. But but be that as it may, that is this group, this organization has a long history of standing up for the profession and for what what we mean to medicine. And the, uh, the idea, the concept that, as I've always said, we are the science of medicine. And we it is that is our purview. That is our scope of practice. So they started writing papers about um, codifying the scope of practice, codifying competencies, levels of practice. This went on all during the 1970s and 1980s. There was a lot of writing uh, that in those days. It turned out to be a wonderful thing because as I told you, when the uh, National Labor Relations Board was looking at us, we had all that documentation to show them. Um, we, we did. Leave the Board of Registry in the mid 1990s and form the National Certificate Credentialing Agency, mm-hmm. to um, because we said we should be credentialing ourselves. We don't need pathologists to be doing this, uh, and, and you, the, that that organization existed until 2009. So, ASCLS has always had a vision of what this organ, what the profession should be like, what our role is in medicine, what our role is with patients. We're the ones with the code of ethics. I don't know if you know this. We are one of the few professional groups that has a code of ethics. Really? Both respiratory therapy, um, physical therapy. And I'm trying to remember, there was one other profession that actually contacted us when they were Writing books about their profession mm-hmm. and asked permission to use our code of ethics as an example. Yeah, as an example of what a code of ethics should look like for a profession. Wow. Oh yeah. Uh, and that—that's ASMT, ASCLS. It's all this organization's doing. Which is all the more
0: reason why people should join. So if you haven't joined, you should join. But um, wow, the. I, I keep telling people at my, at my work and trying to get more people to join the profession, especially young students. And as to why they should join Is like you at the moment may not feel like, you know, much is happening, but when you're a part of something this big, you will make positive change and you will make it better for the patient. Because at the end of the day, we all work for the patient. And by having things like the, um, I actually recently saw this at my, at my job where they've replaced all of our screensavers with this rotating slideshow of stuff. And, um, I'm trying to remember what the study was, but it's about the, um, about conserving blood, the choosing wisely program. Yes. And that has, and I remember reading about it, how ASCLS is part of that. I know someone who's on, on that board, on that, uh, committee, the choosing wisely committee. And then now I'm seeing it, actually at my job and it's being promoted at my job and being like a like shared with all of our doctors, nurses, just a reminder of like, you know, what to do in, for these cases and at the, I remember thinking, you know, I don't know where this, when, when I first read about, I was like, you know, this is interesting because it was right when I had started joining ASCLS and I was like, I don't really know what ASCLS does. And to me, it's so cool to see some like a project like that, or like a committee like that, making so much change that it's now like instituted. Yep. Across the
1: board. And yeah. That's true. And things that frustrated us in our professional lives, you with ASCLS, you can come to the organization and you can talk about it and the odds are good. You're not the only one who's been frustrated by something. And together ASCLS brings people together who then collectively decide how this should be handled. How should there be a paper? Should there be a a statement? Should we be writing a letter, doing a letter writing campaign? It, It depends. There's no one answer to any of this, but the one thing that cannot, will never happen is you can't resolve any of this if you're not speaking with one voice. And the only way to do that is to belong to the group that is doing the speaking. A lot of folks think that they have to belong to ASCP and ASCP is a wonderful organization, but in the end, that organization was born for the pathologist. That's who started that organization. That's who will in the end still be that organization. If you want, if you maintain that you are capable of independent practice, then you have to be in an independent organization. And Mm -hmm. that's ASCLS. And it is incredibly important. What I keep telling folks is um, we started out as technicians and as uh, an individual who was meant to assist a physician in doing laboratory tests. And they were very manual, very simple tests in those days. And we grew as far as the number of tests as the science grew. And then the the need became great with as far as patients were concerned. And that, that led to the automation. And everybody thought the automation was going to like replace us. It didn't replace us. In fact, the automation made us even more important because now we were putting out more tests even quicker than we were before. And there was a need for somebody to make sure those tests were right before they went out the door. And that was us. And then the science grew. And I'm going to tell you, I I know this from uh, the CDC projects that I have been involved in, the science has grown to the point that physicians can't keep up mm-hmm. the, the names that we have given to uh, genetic tests, for instance, we like those names because they, they t- like they'll tell us what snip mm-hmm. or what location on the DNA molecule or what amino acid is being has changed. Um, The docs, on the other hand, look at it as a gobbledygook of alphabets with a number or two thrown in, and they have no idea. And then we find that the EGFR is not only good for cancer of the lung or the colon or the kidney, but we can do this with it. And the doc is like, but EGFR, I thought that was estimated glomerular filtration rate. What the heck is EGFR, okay. We know what we mean. They're like, you know, you, you've, you've messed me up now for good. Uh, we love BRCA, uh, I, mm-hmm. I can tell you that there are very few physicians who can tell you what the, the letters stand for. So we, we have now got so much that we can do for patients and physicians are overwhelmed. They, as one group of physicians that we held a focus group for said, I order a fixed number of tests that I am familiar with, that I know what the results mean. And after that, if I can't figure it out, I got to send the patient to a specialist because I don't know what to do next. Well, there's there's good to that, but it also increased healthcare costs uh, when it's possible that the patient didn't need a specialist, but just rather a different laboratory test. Right. And we're the ones who understand all of this. No one else understands it the way we do. So we have, got to, we have got to be willing to talk to docs because we used to think that the doc was our customer. That's not true. The doc is our partner on the healthcare team our customer is the patient, Mm -hmm. okay? And we have to remember, we are taking care of patients. We are not taking care of the doc. We're taking care of patients. We and the doctor and the nurse and everybody else is taking care of the patient. And the only way that we can do that effectively and efficiently is to do our part, which is the, the science part, the laboratory testing part, If we leave that up to somebody else to do the ordering and the understanding of the results, patients are not going to be treated the way they need to be treated. And that is a major concern of mine because, um, I mean, I'll I'll be honest with you, I entered this profession because I didn't didn't think I wanted to take, you know, like touch patients and, you know, that kind of stuff. (laughs) And I, I am, <laughs> I am not. Um, I can be a little. I, I not a little. I know I can be very abrupt. I am. Um, I'm not anybody's. You know, like my, one of my professors said. Do you know what TLC stands for? And we all looked at him like, uh-huh. and he said, if you think it means tender loving care, you're in the wrong profession. Go transfer to nursing. <laughs> if- <laughs> If you think it means thin layer chromatography, this is your profession. <laughs> and I, I kind of, I mean, I took that to heart. I was like, oh yeah, okay, fine. I, I get it now. But, but things have changed. And would I have been written up less if I'd been a little nicer to the docs I was talking to? Probably. But, um, I, you know, we weren't taught how to communicate. <laughs> Today, I would like to think that you know we are starting to realize we need to teach all of ourselves and our new students how to communicate, (laughs) so that we uh, can take take part in the health in the healthcare team and and uh, not annoy people. But uh, having said all that, there are a group of us, and will always be a group of us who have got to be willing to put our arms around the physician, the nurse or whomever and say, let me help you help your patient, help my patient. We're all going in this together.
0: Right. We're all on the same team. That's right. Yep. So if you could have, if you, if you could have one pie in the sky dream come true for the profession, what, what would it be? What would you love to see?
1: well, I would love to see more DCLs, to be honest. Um, and I guess my real pie in the sky, my real pie in the sky would be the next time that there is a pandemic or the next time there is some major concern about a particular healthcare condition that the person that they're interviewing on TV is us. Mm-hmm.
0: Where- I do remember quite a few times my mom would call me and tell me I saw this on the news according to a doctor about your testing yeah and the amount of times I would have to explain to her that's actually not entirely true there's more nuances to it if I will say the one one of the I mean there are not many positives since pandemic but one of the positives that at least people or more recognizing the laboratory more they still may not fully understand it because now they just think it's all COVID testing at this point that's right. all we do is just COVID, and that before we didn't do much right um, <laughs> <laughs> but at least there is recognition of there are people behind the scenes there there are people working on things that right. lab is not just when when the doctor says I'm sending your blood off to the lab. It's not a mysterious box that they send it to. There are actually people there doing things, actual medical laboratory scientists there doing things.
1: But it would have been wonderful if some of us were being interviewed to explain the difference between the PCR and an antigen and or an antibody test. And, you know, so instead you've got some infectious disease guy doing an explanation and I'm sitting there going well that's not exactly correct but uh it's closer than the other guy (laughs) he was talking about so you know I, I just yeah that's that's my big dream is that when they the next time they will actually call the lab and ask somebody to talk about it so for instance one one of the problems with with uh SARS-CoV-2 uh, are coagulation issues. Mm-hmm. Did you see anybody talking about none of know, that? The coagulopathy? No. No.
0: Yeah, I remember actually, um, my mom was like, "I yeah, she was, she was one of those who she's only thing she listens to is the news, right? Or reads the newspaper, anything I say, it's always, but the news said this. Mm-hmm. And I remember having to explain to her about how. The, the testing shortages were more than just COVID test shortages, not more than just reagent shortages, and more than pipette shortages. That we we're also having major issues in the sheer amount of dimers we we're going through, sheer amount of fibrinogen we're going. through. We're just like running through these tests like it's nobody's business. And she was like, "I don't even know what that means. Why? Why does that even matter?" Right. We need a George Fritzma on TV. <laughs> yes, that'd be great. <laughs> We need a you and a George Frisba on TV. That's what we need. We need both of you guys.
1: It's, uh, someday, I hope.
0: One day, one day.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Well, thank you so much for talking to me about an, a general history of, of the profession. And I do realize for our listeners, it has jumped all over the board, but that's how good conversations go. You know, you go where the flow, you go where the flow, go with the flow and also see how my sentences are going to Come out of my mouth today. It seems like.
1: <laughs> well, thank you for asking me to do this, Sophia. It is always wonderful to talk to you, and I just, I, and I love, I love this profession. So I, I love talking about it. So thank you. thank
0: You and thank you, Alyssa, so much for sharing your passion with us today about the profession. You're someone I personally look up to in the profession, and I, oh, I also, you. I love talking to you. Also, also, thank your you. shelf is so cool. <laughs>
1: Oh, <laughs> all my, all the laboratory books. and Yes.
0: <laughs> that's how you know it's true, lab people. You have lab books on your bookshelves.
1: Oh, yeah. Oh. Fun <laughs> a lot like of that. Yeah. And then my chocolate sign is actually <laughs> chemical symbols. Spelling out oh. chocolate. Oh,
0: <laughs> I, I adore that. I I truly adore that.
1: Because that's we my have, favorite thing is chocolate.
0: <laughs> we have a side at our um, lead tech office that says, uh, have you done science today? Yes? No? If you haven't done science, go do science. But if you have, do you deserve chocolate? Have you had to fix something? Yes, you deserve chocolate. No, you still deserve chocolate.
1: <laughs> That's a good sign. <laughs> I love it.
0: <laughs> well, thank you so much. And listeners, uh, if you want to hop on and join the discussion, and talk about anything else related to the profession, or if you want to know more, Go onto our Facebook uh, page on ASEL's Facebook page. Leave a comment in the comment section or, or, you know, tweet tweet at us. Um, Alyssa, do you have a Twitter account at all?
1: No, I'm sorry. I don't. I'm only on LinkedIn. I'm not on anything else.
0: (laughs) Well, you can find Alyssa on LinkedIn then and send her a message and ask her questions. Um, I am on Twitter and I attempt to be on Twitter. I'm not the best at it. I am at Warbler, W-A-R-B-L-E-R dot works. Sorry, no, Warbler underscore works. I forgot, there are no dots on Twitter. Um, So I'm Warbler underscore works on Twitter. So yeah, uh, feel free to shoot a message and we'll keep talking. Thank you again, Lissa. Thank you so
1: much. Thanks, Sophia. Take care. Thanks, you too. Bye-bye. Bye.